I want to pick up our study where we left off last Lord's Day. Now, if you weren't here, you can listen to it. If you've forgotten, hopefully this will be a reminder. But one of the very last texts that we read last Lord's Day was from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter said, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds, you have been healed. Peter says, speaking of Christ, He Himself, that is, the only begotten Son of God, who was in the beginning with God and was eternally blessed in the bosom of His Father, the one without whom was not anything made that has been made, the one who even now upholds the universe by the word of His power, He Himself that one, that same one, bore our sins in his body. Though he himself, essentially speaking, does not have a body of his own, he took a body, a real human body and soul. He took to himself the whole nature of a man and became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, why? So that He could bear our sins in His body. That is, so that He could have the guilt and the curse of sin, our sins, imputed to Him, and then having the guilt and curse of our sins imputed to Him, He could then receive in Himself the penalty of God's justice for those sins so that there is no justice left as far as retribution or penalty for us. He took it all on Himself. He took it all away from us on Himself. That's what happened. That's the good news of what happened on the tree, as Peter says, on the cross of Golgotha, as the children's catechism says. The Son of God took flesh and blood that He might obey and suffer as a man. Peter is describing the, the culmination of his sufferings. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. Now, why did he do this? What is the fruit of that awful scene of the cross? What is the fruit? Well, there are many fruits, but Peter mentions here in this verse that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here he describes what we would call the twofold work of sanctification. Dying to sin, living to righteousness, mortification, and vivification. This is the way I've explained it to my children. If you go outside and you get really, really muddy, all of your clothes are covered in mud, and you're covered from head to toe, and you want to come in the house, well, we're not just going to take your clothes off of you and let you walk around naked. No, we're going to take your clothes off of you and wash you and put on clean clothes. You wouldn't spend the rest of your life naked because you got dirty. You would have to put on clean clothes. And that's how sanctification works. The Spirit works in us to mortify our sins, to put off sin, but also to put on righteousness, to die to sin, to live to righteousness. And we can do that. 
And, and the Bible says every Christian will be doing that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. We who are united to Christ have been healed from our malady, healed of our sin sickness, delivered from that bondage to decay that was in our souls because of sin. We've been healed. We who are united to Christ no longer have to be afraid of of being uh, or or of, of the progressively corroding chronic leprosy of sin that will eventually rot the soul of every unbeliever and take them into the flames of hell forever. The believer doesn't have to fear that. We have a, a different confidence. We have a hope that the Holy Spirit has healed our souls and that this healing is going to produce progressive, nourishing, vibrant life in us by His power, through which we will become actually, really, more and more righteous. We will become more and more, to use this term, moral, morally righteous, morally upright people. Not according to a subjective standard that the world gives, or that we just make up in our minds, I think this is good and I think this is bad, but according to the righteous standard of God. This righteousness, which is really just conformity to God's law, that's what righteousness is, conformity to God's law, we could sum all of that righteousness up in one word, love. Love. Because as Jesus Himself said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're going to grow in righteousness because of what Christ has done. What does that look like? We could sum it all up in love. We're going to increase in love. The evidence that you're being sanctified is that you're growing in love. Christian maturity is manifested in love. For one another. It's God's desire that we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love... Paul says, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Love. God wants us to grow up in love and into love. Love. True righteousness is summed up in love. As one commentator put it, quote, the Christian or Christian maturity 
is the flowering of those qualities which characterize the God who reveals Himself in the humiliation of the cross and the love of Christ for others. In this we know love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ dying on the cross, the apex of the manifestation of God's love. We are to grow up into that, to imitate and follow that pattern of love. God reveals Himself to men in the humiliation of the cross. His Son bearing our sins in His body on the tree, by which humiliation we are reconciled to Him, given His Spirit, and caused to grow into and imitate the same kind of love that He has showed us the sum of all perfect righteousness. And all of that is in this life is to prepare us to live with God forever in a place that Peter refers to as new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is the sum of righteousness? It's love. Jonathan Edwards once said, quote, the great or that great fruit of the Spirit in which the Holy Ghost shall not only for a season, but everlastingly be communicated to the church of Christ, is charity or divine love. That's why he called heaven a world of love. Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might grow up into and mature into and increase more and more in love, divine love, love to God and love to men in order to prepare us to live forever in a world of divine love. Love to God, love to men. This, this, this short life, just getting us ready for eternity. God is preparing us and maturing us for the life that is to come. And so, based on all of that, we can conclude that the Corinthian problem of divisions in the church was really a love problem. It was a love problem. And their love problem was a maturity problem. Their growth was stunted In trying to reveal all of this to the Corinthians, Paul has had to take up a defense of his ministry and the Christian ministry in general. As we saw last week, he pulled out the only defense necessary to vindicate his ministry and his message and his methods. All he had to show, all he had to prove to them or to to remind them of was the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The Spirit worked. The Spirit was there. That vindicated everything he ever done amongst them. And so as we pick up in verse 6, Paul is still giving a defense of his ministry, or or we could say the Christian ministry in general. But now he's heading down a hallway that has been illuminated by that mention of the Holy Spirit. He he mentioned a demonstration of the Spirit, and now he's sort of he's taking that rabbit trail, so to speak. He's going to talk about the Spirit a little bit more. Now, This section, as I said last week, verse verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 4, is packed full of what we would call doctrine, teaching. Packed full. Little little 
statements that Paul makes that you know they're connected to much larger principles of Christian dogma, Christian teaching that are found elsewhere in Scripture. But Paul doesn't take the time to expound upon them all. He just sort of mentions it and mentions it and mentions it like steps, building a case, assuming that there's some understanding of what he's saying, and that makes it, in my opinion, a very difficult passage to preach. I said last week, I don't really know how to preach this. I'll say it again, I still don't really know how to preach this section. The question is always, how far should we go here? How much background should we give to that that doctrine? How far should we chase that rabbit in order to explain this rabbit that Paul is chasing? Another difficulty that we have here is that there are little threads that are woven from verse 6 all the way to chapter 3, verse 4, and even beyond that, throughout the entire letter. The flow of argument is so interconnected that it's hard to say, well, we're going to deal with verses 6 through 8, and then 9 through etc., etc. It's hard to do that. It's hard to break it up because everything is connected with everything else. So, what we're going to do is just start walking through the text. And... As we meet with an issue or a thread, so to speak, a loose thread, we'll pull it and see how far it goes. We'll we'll trace it, and then we'll come back to where we left off, and we'll just continue working through it verse by verse. I say all that to say I I don't have points. Um, We're just going to walk straight through it. Hopefully it doesn't come across like just a commentary. Most of what I have here is just the fruit of me starting to type to try to get my thoughts out on paper to see if I understand what's happening. And so it may seem like just a commentary, but I, th- I think we'll draw some, some applications from what, what we have here. So look at verse 6. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He begins with the word, yet. Or you may have, how be it. Or however. Synonyms for this word would be, nevertheless. Or, notwithstanding. Or phrases like, in spite of that. Or, but at the same time, yet. This is a connecting word. That lets us know that he's still dealing with the same argument, the same issue. The word that's translated here, yet, holds on to what was previously stated, maintains it, while leading to another truth that must be affirmed even though it might be doubted based on the first truth. So let me me explain. If I said to you, it was 100 degrees Thursday, yet I was able to keep cool in the shade. Now, if you take these two statements separately, it was 100 degrees, and I was able to keep cool, you might think, how does that go together? How can that be possible? Well, I put that little word in the middle, yet. That lets you know You have to hold both of them together. There must be some qualifier then. Well, the qualifier was in the shade. Both both truths remain. The word yet, 
looks at two truths which might seem contrary and makes them hold hands. He says, you guys get, hold hands and get along. That's what the word yet does. Now, the usage of this word lets us know that Paul ha- is, is meeting a potential challenge or he's heading off a potential uh, challenge. He's, he's trying to get out in front of an error that someone might assume based on all that he's already said. So Paul has either heard or he anticipates a false deduction from what he's said. And he wants to make sure that the truth is maintained. Now what is that wrong direction? What is the falsehood that he has heard? What is the error that he is anticipating here? Well, think about it. You you might be inclined to hear everything that Paul has said so far, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17 or 18, all the way through the end of chapter 1, even into chapter 2, you might be inclined to hear all of that, all that he said in vehement opposition to wisdom and suspect that what he means is that there's nothing even approaching what might be called wise in the scheme of Christianity. That basically, as Christians, we throw out everything that even smells of wisdom. That Christianity is all elementary or rudimentary. It's all contrary to reasonable or rational thought. That Christianity amounts to really nothing more than imaginary fairy tales that a child could debunk. You've thrown out all wisdom. Well, what's left? Foolishness. Some might think that. Because, I mean, he's, he's been just going against wisdom. The wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world. This might have been a charge from some of the Corinthians against Paul in particular. Specifically Paul. We'll see later on, and we we know that they had countless guides, but that he was their father in the faith. That, That means he had come to them first. He had laid the foundation. He had planted. All of this is in chapter 3 and and 4 and on. He had done all of that, that early work. So there's no doubt that that implies that a lot of his ministry among them, that that 18 months that he spent with them, a lot of that was spent in what we would probably consider the introductory, ground-laying or foundational truths of the Christian faith. He was laying the foundation. Now when he left, they got to hear other preachers, men like Apollos we've talked about. And they might have begun to think, you know what? Paul... Paul was not very wise. Paul was not very knowledgeable. He was not very eloquent like Apollos was. And so their mindset could have been something like this. This Paul, his speech is contemptible. His message is very basic. He delivers it in terms that even a child could understand. We're ready to get back to Apollos. We're ready to grow up. We're ready to get on to the the, the deep things. And so you can see that in their minds, in, in, the, in the, the carnal mind, we have two truths that are easily reconciled. We oppose the wisdom of the world. Christianity is all foolishness. I don't have to put a yet in between those two statements. That, that makes perfect sense to the fallen mind. It's opposed to foolishness, or it's opposed to wisdom. It's all foolishness. Well, the problem with that thinking is that Christianity is not foolishness. It's not that. Christianity is not contrary to all reasonable and rational thought. Christianity 
The wisdom of God is opposed to worldly wisdom. Not all wisdom. Worldly wisdom. Christianity is immensely wise because it comes from the mind of the all-wise God. So with that word, yet, he is implying that he can, in fact, hold these two seemingly opposing ideas together. We oppose the wisdom of the world. We have the wisdom of God. We're not against wisdom altogether. Paul's pushing the pendulum back in the other direction where they have, might, have, might have heard him say, well, I guess it's all foolishness. No, no, no. We do impart wisdom. Just not a wisdom of this world. He's going to reconcile these two things. All that he said about the wisdom of the world and all that he's about to say about wisdom which comes from God. Now, the, if we were to read the verse in, in the way that it's originally written, it would sound something like this. Wisdom, yet we do impart. He begins with wisdom. He starts with this emphasis on wisdom. Lest anyone think, well, we're throwing all wisdom out the window. Come, come to Christ. Come be a Christian. Throw all wisdom, all thinking out the window. Come be ignorant with us. He starts by saying, wisdom yet we do impart. That's what he's saying here. But there's one issue that has to be cleared up with regard to this wisdom, and especially as it relates to the Corinthians. And that issue comes to the surface in this phrase, among the mature. Yet among the mature, or wisdom yet we do impart among the mature. And in English, among the mature comes after the word yet. Now here we're confronted with the first of several difficulties in this section of the epistle. Numerous commentaries talked about the difficulty of this, this section. Some of them said this is the hardest to interpret of all of, of this epistle. This is one of the, the first difficulties in that phrase, among the mature. The word used here, translated mature in the ESV or perfect in the King James, is the word teleos. Some of you have heard us use that phrase telos before. If you've ever listened to many apologists defending the existence of God, some of them will refer to the teleological argument. That, that idea of telos or teleology refers to the, the goal or the, the end purpose, the culmination of it all. So the question here is, who are the mature? Who are the perfect? We have several options. Option number one, the perfect are those who are perfect. They have no sins, no defects, no flaws whatsoever. They are perfect. Option number two, the perfect here refers to every Christian. Option three, the word perfect or mature refers to mature Christians. Now, I don't think that I'm too far off base if I throw out number one without explanation. We're not talking about people who are sinless and have no flaws, no defects. Literally perfect. That's not who he's talking about. I'm also going to rule out number two. And I'll explain why. Number two was that he's referring to all Christians. And I'm going to do it sort of backwards. Why would anybody think that in using this term, Paul refers to everyone born of the Spirit. But among the mature, we could trade out, but among Christians, we do impart wisdom. Why would somebody think that? Well, the best ex explanation contextually is that Paul is about to go into an explanation of the revelation of the Spirit of God to man. 
So the argument goes like this. All Christians have the Spirit of God. All Christians have access to the revelation of the Spirit. Therefore, he must be talking about all Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is often our go-to text when we try to explain to people that a lost person cannot understand the things of God. Well, what's the implication? A saved person can understand. 1 Corinthians 2 is opposing all Christians with all lost people. Well, there are some truths that we can get there or get from there, but that's not the point here. The problem that I see with that interpretation that he's referring to all Christians is that Paul in this section, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, is not talking about all Christians. What have we been talking about since chapter 1? Preaching and preachers. He's not talking about all Christians. The second thing is the word that is used here, teleos, is used far too often to refer not to every single Christian at the moment of regeneration, but the maturity that comes over time as they grow. That's why it's translated mature here. And thirdly, this is precisely what Paul's trying to address with the saints in Corinth. It fits the context that he, he's meaning not every Christian, but mature Christians. The Corinthians were Christians, but they were not mature Christian. Now let me show you this from, from some other text. We won't, you won't have to turn there, but I'll just read these to you. Philippians 3.15 Let those of us who are mature, same word, mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In, in Philippi there were some who are mature, and there are some who think otherwise, who are not mature or are not perfect in that particular instance. But the expectation is that God will bring them along. They will mature over time. God will get you there. The mature think this way, and if you differ, well, God will bring you along. That's what he's saying. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now this verse is very telling because notice Paul mentions wisdom. He warns and teaches with wisdom. What is his goal? That he may present everyone mature in Christ. Not that they were mature at the instant of their regeneration, but that through his ongoing ministry of warning and teaching, they would be made mature in the judgment when they are presented to Christ. They'll, they'll get to that point. That's the word mature, same word. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Even closer to the context of 1 Corinthians. Hebrews chapter 5, you need milk, not solid food. Doesn't that sound familiar? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. Same word. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here in that text you have the child opposed to the mature. You have children who get milk. You have the mature who get solid food. The mature have their discernment trained to distinguish good from evil. How? Through constant practice. Over time they grow to that point. So you have Christians who are childish. You have Christians who are mature. And then in 1 Corinthians itself, 
1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Same word, mature. He uses the word brothers. It lets us know he's dealing with Christians. These brothers can potentially be children in their thinking, or they can be mature in their thinking. Childishness and immaturity is contrasted with maturity. But both can be descriptive of true saints. The same word that's used here in our passage. The simple truth is that there are mature Christians and there are immature Christians. There are babes in Christ and there are old men and fathers in Christ. There are those who've just begun the Christian life who are infants. There are some who have been Christians for some time, but they still have some infantile areas of thinking where they need to grow. There are some who are forced early through affliction and trial to, to grow up quickly in some areas where they may lack in other areas. But to be a Christian is, is not just this altogether equal playing field where everybody is at the same level. There are mature Christians. There are immature Christians. Now when we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 and the surrounding context, what do we find? He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Then, after the excursus on the spiritual nature of revelation, he takes up the personal address again with them in chapter 3 saying, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. If we wanted to, to set aside the, the bulk of chapter 2 and splice these addresses together, it would sound like this. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. But I had to address you as infants. And so it seems clear to me that in Paul's mind, mature or perfect in chapter 2 verse 6 is meant to contrast the state of the Corinthians as infants in Christ in chapter 3 verse 1. So mature stands over against infants. It's not Christian versus non-Christian. It's mature versus immature. Now here is another interesting point that in chapter 3, if you've got your Bible, you can see it that they're being called infants in Christ is synonymous with these other phrases in verse 1, of the flesh, verse 3, of the flesh, verse 3, behaving in a human way, or verse 4, being or acting merely human. In other words, immaturity, being an infant in Christ, had to do with Mostly for the Corinthians, their actions. They were Christians, but they acted like, they acted almost like unbelievers in many ways. Now, if that comparison is correct, and you have the mature versus the infants, then being mature or perfect is synonymous with being spiritual people in chapter 3, verse 1. Again, if we splice these two sections together, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, chapter 3, but I could not address you as spiritual people. Now, you would think he would say mature people, but he said spiritual people. That's because between these two verses is that discussion about the work of the Spirit. 
In other words, Paul is saying that there are mature saints and there are immature saints. Maturity can be displayed in one's thinking or many times in their actions or in their thinking which leads to actions. Mature saints are called spiritual. Spiritual doesn't have to mean merely born again of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, every Christian is spiritual, but there are other meanings to that term, spiritual. Mature saints are spiritual. It's these who are capable of receiving and discerning the wisdom of God rightly. But when Paul came to Corinth, he could not address the Corinthians as spiritual people. When he first went, they were unconverted. He dealt with them for 18 months. They were still immature. And by the time he writes this letter, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, you're still not ready. You're still immature because you're acting like children. Their actions proved that they were immature. There's jealousy and strife among you. In other words, he's saying, Corinthians, I, I really feel like I need to take you back to preschool and teach you how to walk in a straight line, how to raise your hand before you talk, and that you shouldn't throw sand in each other's face on the playground. we got to go back to basic stuff. Why? Because you're still acting like children. He says, back to our verse, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And there's probably a hint of, of rebuke or holy sarcasm involved here. Because we know as we read these epistles, First and Second Corinthians, that the Corinthians thought themselves to be very spiritual. They thought themselves to be very mature. And yet their immaturity is shown in that they disputed with one another. They thought themselves spiritual, but they despised the apostle. That evidence that they weren't spiritual. And so he's saying, in effect, yes, we certainly do impart wisdom. Of course we impart wisdom. It's just that only the spiritually mature are able to receive it as such. Kind of hinting already that this is why you have such a problem. You're not mature. You're not ready for it yet. Now the phrase, we do impart, among the mature, yet among the mature, we do impart presents us with the next interpretive question, the next issue. The question is, who is we? Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. To whom does Paul refer when he says we? Because the use of that of first-person plural pronouns, we, us, our, starts here and goes through to the end of the chapter, chapter 2. So who's he talking about when he says, we? I'll give you some options. Number one, every Christian. He's, he's including himself with all of the saints. He's saying, we impart wisdom. Or secondly, the holy apostles and prophets who laid the foundation of the New Testament church. I would argue number two is the best answer. We do impart is a reference to the apostles and prophets who laid the foundation of the New Testament church through their preaching. Now, why do I say that? Well, first, because the language implies it. We impart. There are some who are doing the imparting, and there are others who are receiving the impartation. It implies two parties. We, and then the others. Yet among the mature, one party, we do impart. 
other party. There's two parties here. There are some who give the message, some who receive the message. Now, if every Christian is assumed in the word we, then the recipients of the message, we, all Christians, do impart to who else? Well, it would have to be the lost world. Well, that doesn't fit with among the mature. That doesn't make any sense. The mature have to be saints. Secondly, if we follow the way Paul deals with the the Corinthians here, he's already made this kind of transition where he goes from the plural to the singular. He works his way broadly down to to the, the narrow application to himself. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. And and these pronouns are always applied to the preachers over against those receiving the preaching. Chapter 1, verse 21, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, two groups. We, those. Chapter 1, verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, verse 24, to those called. The preachers, those called, two groups. And then when he gets to chapter 2, there's that transition to the singular. And I, so broadly, generally, we all preach, but then chapter 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Two groups. Verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness. See, there's always these two parties. Why? Because he's talking about preaching and preachers. He's dealing with those who have to hear and receive the preaching from the preachers. There's always these two groups. He started out broadly with the general preaching of the gospel, and then he descended to the particular instance of himself, always separating the preachers from the hearers. The we earlier was a reference to the duly authorized messengers of the gospel. Now we come to chapter 2 and go into chapter 3 and we see he does the exact same thing again. In chapter 2 verse 6 he follows his own pattern. Verse 6 yet among the mature, that's one group we do impart wisdom that's the other. Verse 7 we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Verse 10 these things God has revealed to us Verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world. Verse 13, we impart this. And then chapter 3, verse 1, he narrows it down. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Verse 2, I fed you with milk. Again, in each instance where pronouns are used in the first person, we, us, I, it's always a reference to those who preached over against those who received the preaching. Later on in chapter 4, he says, verse 1, this is how one should regard us. Who's us? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, the preachers and the recipients, you see. So when Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6, we do impart... The we is a reference to himself and the other apostles and prophets of the New Testament time who laid the foundation of the New Testament church. The word impart also helps us follow that same train of thought. It means to speak or to express in speech. Chapter 2, verse 6, we do impart. Chapter 2, verse 7, but 
we impart. Chapter 2, verse 13, and we impart. And then the same word is used in chapter 3, verse 1, but I, brothers, could not address you. That word address is the same word, impart. I couldn't bring that to you. So again, you see the flow of thought. The apostolic preachers have a message to convey through speech. They speak or convey or impart wisdom from God. They communicate it through words taught to them by the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, I was limited in the way that I could deal with you because of your immaturity. Remember again our theme, preaching and preachers. The theme is not every Christian. Now when we hear that, we might object or say, Does, doesn't that interpretation or that reading... Doesn't that give me, the average Christian in the pew today, a lesser spot on the scheme of revelation from God? I was used to reading that, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as if it applied to every Christian. And now you're, you're robbing me of that. Doesn't that knock me down a little and make me lower than these others? Well, if, if by that lesser spot you mean that not all Christians are apostles... And not all Christians receive revelation from God in the same way that the apostles did, then yes, absolutely, that places us in a lesser position beneath the apostles. If you mean by that that they got some revelation that we don't have, yes, that's true, that, that, that is reality. But if by that you mean that they receive the Word of God and we have something less than the Word of God, then no. That's not what's being implied here. It's actually the exact opposite. They received what they needed in a particular mode to serve the purposes of God in their time, in their role. We have received what we need in a different mode to serve the purposes of God in our generation. But we've both received the Word of God. We, we both have the Word of God. Not all revelation from God is given in the same way. We, we, we can't fault God or, or, or think that this is wrong. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago is at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Christ told the apostles in John 14, 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That means everything He taught them during His ministry. The Spirit's going to come and bring that to your mind. The Spirit does not do that for us because we weren't there in His earthly ministry. He wasn't talking to all Christians without qualification. In John 16, verse 13, He says, Speaking of the Spirit, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Future events. Well, the Spirit doesn't reveal to us future events like He did the apostles. There's a difference here. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Revelations like that are not given to us. Paul says, I saw things I can't speak of. He had revelations we don't have. 
So no, not all revelation from God is given in the same way. And yet we do all have the Word of God. What, what does this do for us? This should give us an immensely high view of the Scriptures. The Scriptures. Because when we see that God spoke to the prophets of the Old Testament and to the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, and that Christ promised to bring to the minds of His disciples all that He said to them, that He, through the Spirit, would declare to them the things that are to come. And when we recognize that the Bible is the culmination of all of that, we are to hold this with a death grip. White-knuckle it. It doesn't reduce revelation in our minds Well, where we pout. Oh, I don't get what they got. No, you've got everything that God has, has determined for us to have in His Word, inscripturated. We have in our Bibles what God intended for us to have through the mouths and pens of men who received the revelation in a different way, yes, but not any less the Word of God. What we need, God has kept for us in the Scriptures, as, as we've heard before, there are, there are at least one epistle, I think probably two epistles, to the Corinthians we don't have. Was that infallible revelation from the Spirit through Paul to them? I think it was. We just don't have it. God determined it wasn't for us. But we have what we need. Now the other view of this chapter, that, that what Paul is saying here applies to all Christians in the same way that it does the apostles, is what leads to the grave errors that we see in the charismatic movement. What are their errors? A neglect of Scripture. Their view of Scripture goes way down. And they trade it for, or they focus on, the personal, private revelation from God. Well, I mean, after all, it says right here, the Spirit's going to teach me things in words taught by the Spirit. Well, if that's every Christian, if God is giving me private revelations by His Spirit... And He's giving me the very words with which to articulate them to others. Well, why would I give attention to the old revelations that He gave to other people? Why would we not write my words down and say these are inspired by the Holy Spirit? If I've got a private line from God just for me, this is their thinking, why would I spend much time considering the private lines that other men had with God that were for other peoples and other times? Low view of Scripture, a high view of, of this, this private view because they take this to apply to all Christians. It corrodes one's need for the Scriptures. So he's defending the apostolic ministry. He's defending apostolic preaching. He's distinguishing the early apostles and prophets who ministered the Word from those who received the Word. Now with those difficulties cleared out of the way, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Here is where he makes clear the contrast, his main argument. It's not a wisdom of this age. We do impart wisdom, just not worldly wisdom. He had set the ministry of the gospel of Christ crucified in direct opposition to worldly wisdom, the wisdom of men. Now the pendulum could swing potentially to the other extreme where they say, well, then this Christianity must be a bunch of just foolish nonsense. Excuse me. He says, in effect, no, 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 don't go that, that, that extreme. We do have a message of wisdom. 
And it's a message that we impart among the mature. It's just not a wisdom of this age. The word age is the word ion. It refers to a particular stage of history in God's economy of redemption. In the New Testament, you'll see this age contrasted with the age to come. This age is the time prior to Christ's return. The age to come is the time after Christ's return. The eternal state. This age is always referencing things that are going to pass away, that are going to be done with. One example is found in Luke, the most, the easiest and most common example, Luke chapter 20. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, or that would be the age to come, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. This age is characterized by the institution of marriage. That age, or the age to come, is the eternal state, the state of the resurrection, in which there will be no marriage. So when Paul says, it's not a wisdom of this age, he's emphasizing that the message of the cross, the Christian gospel message of a Savior dying as a substitute for sinners and rising from the dead, is without question a message of immense and immeasurable wisdom. It's just not the type of wisdom that you have in this age. It's not from this age or the people of this age. It's not a fleeting type of wisdom. It's not earthly wisdom. It's not wisdom from men. It doesn't revolve around the matters of this present world. It's from an entirely different world. It's otherworldly wisdom. Now remember the Christian or the Corinthian mindset, just like our own day. They were infatuated with placement and status in life. Who's important? Who's powerful? Who's rich? Who's wise? Who's noble? Those people have attained. They, they are the ones we should all venerate and honor. Here again, Paul attacks that thinking. When he says, we have wisdom. It's just not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. What's everybody want to be? Everybody wants to be a ruler. Everybody wants to be on top. And he's saying, the wisdom which is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not relegated to the powerful of this age. It doesn't originate with them. They're not especially drawn to it. It's not tailored for such as they are. Rulers holding a position of power of wealth, of wisdom, whatever it might be, nobility, that does not give anybody special insight into the wisdom of God. It doesn't give you a head start because you're at the top of a corporate ladder or because you got more money or you're born from nobility or you're intellectually smart. That doesn't give you a head start on understanding gospel truth. Rather, speaking of God... We read in the book of Job, chapter 12, He leads counselors away stripped, and judges He makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waist cloth on their hips. He makes them servants. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt upon princes and loosens the belt of the strong. In other words, God, in order to display His wisdom, He very often makes an open mockery of earthly leaders. 
All of the men that we venerate, God mocks them by bringing them low. He doesn't doesn't pander to the rich, the powerful, the rulers, the mighty. Being a ruler is not a promise of real wisdom. It's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. They're on their way to death. Why? Because they're of this age. This age is coming to a conclusion. These rulers are soon to come to nothing. These rulers are fleeting. The most powerful men in the world right now in, I don't know, probably 20, 30, at least 40, 50 years, they're going to be in the ground, dead. They're gone. They're doomed to pass away. They can't live. God shows the superiority of His wisdom by thwarting the wisdom of the world's wise men and the world's powerful and the world's noble. And we see in this language that there is a chronological limitation to the wisdom of men versus the infinite and unlimited nature of the wisdom that comes from God. This age encompasses some things that are, that are past, some things that, as far as we tell, can be a little bit future. But then there's this reference to doomed to pass away, which alludes to the, the end of this age. Worldly wisdom, in other words, is time-sensitive. It's got, a, it's got a, 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 an expiration date on it. It comes from people who are time-sensitive. They have an expiration date. So does all of their wisdom. Man's wisdom comes with a generation and goes with a generation. It rises to popularity with certain figures, and then it dies when they die. Popular fads of thought will set a trend with a man's name on it, as long as that man lives. But when that man's name is etched on a tombstone, the fad that was with him dies with him. That's man's wisdom. It's time-stamped, short-lived. It's coming to an end. This is not true of God's wisdom. God's wisdom is eternal. God's wisdom spans the generations and epochs of history. God's wisdom transcends cultures and personalities and fads. And again, though we do not receive revelation in the same way that the apostles received it, we do have revelation that comes from God in His Word. God's Word contains eternal wisdom. God's Word contains wisdom which will span generations and epochs of world history. God's Word transcends cultures. It's not tied to personalities. It steamrolls human fads. God's Word. We ought to give ourselves to God's Word, not pout because we don't have private revelation from God like the apostles, but give ourselves to the study of God's Word. But then we have to return to that qualification. Which is what Paul's getting at here with the Corinthians. Because remember, he said, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. The qualification given for receiving this wisdom, and listen to this word, properly, discerning this wisdom properly, is maturity, as we saw last week. To the one who has, more will be given. Albert Barnes puts it this way, Those who have been fully instructed in the knowledge of the Christian religion will be qualified to see its beauty and wisdom. In other words, as you grow in maturity, you are able to receive and discern the beauty and wisdom of 
divine revelation. There's sort of a cyclical irony to our growth in grace. We have to receive in order to grow, but we must grow in order to receive more. It fits exactly with the analogy that he uses many times of the milk and the solid food. There has to be digestion and a proper dispensation of the nourishments that come from milk for a child to grow, but it has to grow before it can be able to eat solid food. You don't stop giving it milk and say, well, I'll just wait till it gets bigger and give it some solid food. Then it'll really grow fast. No, it won't grow fast. It'll die. You feed with the milk. And as the milk nourishes, it's grown up, calcium, is used to form teeth, and they're, they're able to chew meat and solid food. Cyclical, I say. You can receive truth to no good use. You can receive truth and twist it to your own destruction. And that is, as we saw last week, by not coming with faith, not coming to receive, not coming to be transformed, not coming to glorify God in all of His working in you, if we, if we take James 4 and apply it to illumination and the understanding of God's Word, James would say you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There is a, a, something of a qualification that we as Christians need to understand about how we receive and digest God's Word. If your quest into the revelation of God is for selfish reasons, oh, I'm going oh, to show Him. I'm going to show her. You wait till I get my list of verses. I'll show her. That's, that's your own lusts and passions. You're searching God's Word to magnify yourself. You, you're not going to receive anything. You might receive some head knowledge, but you won't grow spiritually. But if you come humbly, seeking to glorify God, willing to go as low as necessary to receive right views of Him, then you can be confident that you'll receive there is a qualification. So we ought to give ourselves to God's Word, but we must come to receive humbly so that we can grow to maturity, so that we can come to receive, so that we can grow to maturity, so that we can come to receive, so that we can grow to maturity. You see how this works. Constantly coming to be fed. Christ Jesus bore our sins in His body on the tree so that these things would be true for us. Let's not forfeit the blessing by seeking our own glory. Let's ask Him to give, him, to give us what we need.